And as you all know, within a month, we do have a state election taking place. And so we thought we'd have a discussion on the state election. Uh, at this stage, of course, uh, everything that should be up, including the budget, it's about $1.1 to $1.5 billion in surplus. That's up. Uh, and so is uh, business and consumer confidence. And everything that should be down, most notably unemployment, is down to a record low of 4.2, 4.3%. And yet, if you look at all the available public opinion polling evidence, it indicates this is going to be a very tight New South Wales state election. So we thought we'd have a great debate and discussion about these issues with two heavyweights on both parties. Uh, I want to introduce <laughs> one at a time. First person, of course, is Bob Carr. Bob was the New South Wales Labor Premier good, good. from um, 1995 to 2005. He's the longest serving Premier in the state, even longer than Bob Askin and Neville Rann. Bob also was a Senator in the Federal Parliament as well as a Foreign Minister and he's the author uh, most recently of what Bob, let me think, uh, Run For Your Life. It's been published by MEP. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Carr. And Nick Reiner, of course, was um, a New South Wales Liberal Premier. He ended 12 years of Labor rule uh, of uh, the Premiers Neville Rand and Bob Unsworth. Um, Neville, uh, Nick was the Premier of New South Wales from 1988 to 1992. He's also been a very distinguished uh, figure in the business community over the best part of the last quarter of century. He's Chairman of the European Australian um, Business Council and of course he's also currently the Federal President of the Liberal Party. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Reiner. And our moderator this evening is uh, an ABC colleague of mine, uh, Bridget Glanville. Bridget is, has been the New South Wales political reporter just up the road at Macquarie Street for the last two terms of government. And she's also the host of a new uh, television program on Friday nights. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Bridget Glanville. Okay. Over to you, Bridget. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Now, I might, uh, I might start with you, Bob Carr. Uh, as we just mentioned, this uh, government um, has been in power for two terms, so it's almost eight years, three premiers. Um, has it been long enough in New South Wales for voters to forgive Labor? Well, eight... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, what is the... Uh, you should say Labor after Bob Carr. Yeah, what, what do you... Um, yeah, I was, I was very happy with my majorities and <laughs> my approval rating when I retired was stratospheric by what came to pass after my time. Um, yeah, what, what, what time does a, a party serve in the prison of opposition after a, after a big defeat and perhaps a long period in government? Um, I'm just thinking of Labor rebuilding federally, the big defeat of 75 under, under Gough Whitlam repeated in 77, but a Labor government back in 83, that was eight years, that was eight years. But to answer that question, you'd need to refer to more than the, uh, the snapshot opinion polls we've got now, which show a, a sort of 50-50 contest, which suggests the public is in a, in a mood to contemplate a return to a Labor government. You'd probably need to look at the qualitative polling 
which is enormously valuable for a political party because it tests arguments. It tests arguments. Mm -hmm. So both sides of politics before focus groups would have said to the participants, um, what do you think of the proposition that Labor is still not ready to come back? What do you think of the proposition that the Labor Party under Michael Daly's leadership has, uh, has taken account of the gripes against it of, uh, of uh, eight years ago? These would be tested. The argument testing is the, you know, the value of those, that sort of polling. Mm. There's been a significant sort of rebranding, I suppose. You know, when, we say, when I say, has it been long enough for voters to forgive Labor, this is obviously post Ian MacDonald and Eddie Obeid and all the, uh, the issues surrounding the party and New South Wales after you, after you exited. So uh, is the electorate, you say eight years, is how, how I suppose, uh, you know, how, how big is the, um, the electorate's memory, you know? Um, and, and how much rebranding has gone on within Labor, Bob Carr, to get to the point for people to try to distance us? Yeah, I, I don't think a deliberate rebranding. Uh, I don't think you can you can um, do anything that specifically addresses that that uh, noisome uh, legacy. But the good sense of the electorate sorts through that. Um, I think they probably weighed the fact that within a sure, I, I, mean, I mean, while Labor was handling uh, that awful problem of, of those generated by those, uh, that personnel, uh, the Liberal Party was constructing backdoor methods of fundraising that ended up taking out, I think, 15 members of parliament as a result of, of a year of, a year and a half of ICAC inquiries. Mm. Uh, the electorate's weighing this all the time. The electorate is never wrong. And the electorate is making assessments about whether that side has learnt, whether this leader is different from the leader who preceded him or her. Um, Nick Reiner, we just heard Tom talk before about the, the budget surpluses in mm. New South Wales. I think there's been six years of them. All I've heard for two terms under the government is how we're rebu rebuilding, we've got the best budget. They, it's the envy of all other states. Um, they're building, you know, $89 billion worth of infrastructure. There's money for absolutely everyone. There's active kids rebates. There's all of these different things that are going on. Mm. Yet they're really close in the polls. Um, how could a government that's effectively doing so well and doing what so many people want state governments to do be that close to losing? What's gone wrong? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that in uh, this is an abnormal time, in not just in New South Wales politics, but in politics around the world. I think there is, uh, uh, there is a broadly unhappy electorate, a questioning electorate, much more than was the case. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And, used to be about perceptions of competence. The reason Bob was elected many times was there was a perception mm. of competence, things were under control, etc. Um, on that basis, or on the basis of the economics and the infrastructure, all the things you talk about, I think the government would normally, in quotes, have expected to be re-elected easily, mm. and one might have, or you didn't have to be Gladys's mother to say they deserve to be re-elected. I think that's a uh, that's a reasonable non-partisan non-partisan yeah. view. But yeah, there is a chance me, yes. they might not. Yeah, and I think that's to do. Uh, especially in uh, regional 
areas. Uh, I, my, for what it's worth, my guess is that in the city there won't be a lot of change despite the, the noise. Um, I think where there is a intense contest tends to be in regional New South Wales uh, where Labor, country Labor as they brand it, the Greens, Independents, Shooters and Fishers are all making serious attempts to win selective seats. And, uh, and I think Anthony Green, your colleague, has said he's going to throw his pendulum out the window for this. His normal model doesn't work, where you simply say, what are the seats, the first seats that have come up on either side? And if there's a swing of 3%, you can roughly tell. Uh, I think all that tells you, it tells you, A, I don't know the answer to your question, <laughs> uh, but it, it says that it's a very different different dynamic and a much less predictable one. And you add optional preferential, which yes, we've had for a while, but which in this sort of climate where you've got some fragmentation uh, of mm. parties, um, the optional preferential obviously adds to the uncertainty. Uh, you know, I remember a few elections ago, Bob will know, um, the Liberals came within a few votes of winning the seat of Balmain. It wasn't because there'd been partly a bit of gentrification, but it was mostly because uh, of optional preferential and there were three candidates, Greens, Labor, Liberal, and they all got 30-odd percent and then it, it was mm. very, very close. So I think, sorry it's a, a long answer, I think it is a hugely unpredictable climate. Um, I, mm. For what it's worth, you'd expect me to say this, uh, uh, I do believe uh, the government deserves to win and I think on balance when people saw it through, for the reasons that you and Tom were sort of factual reasons, I think the government will win. Bob Carr, we just uh, Nick mentioned regional New South Wales and this rise against uh, the major parties. We are seeing it. Um, there's plenty of seats right around uh, the uh, New South Wales where there's going to be like a five-cornered contest. Why are we seeing this rise in regional New South Wales, do you think, against these major parties and going towards um, shooters, One Nation, those sort of more conservative minor parties? Yeah, well, if you look at the, uh, the orange by-election that I think was pretty instructive, people have overlooked local government mergers as part of that. That was a huge motivating factor in, in driving people out of coalition ranks um, to supporting a small party candidate, a classic populist insurgency. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, the assault on greyhound racing hmm. was another very distinct policy that aggravated, um, that agitated voters, motivated voters uh, who would otherwise be counted for the coalition. So I wouldn't overlook it being specific policies rather than the response to a, a shift in ethos. Um, but yes, the, these, this is part of the dealignment of politics. In the past, when Labor was doing well in power, um, that would be reflected in the bush, when we had rusted on loyalties as a feature of our political system, no more than, I'm guessing, 20% of the electorate mm. back in the Rand years in the centre. Now when you've got, what, again, I'm guessing, 40% in the centre prepared to move either way, um, our side of politics couldn't win the uh, New England seat. We did under RAN. It'll go as an expression of protest against the coalition if it goes to anyone, as will Orange or Wagga, 
to one of these boutique party populist impulses. So the, the, the motive force in our politics is de-alignment. As an old friend of mine, John Wielden, former Labor senator, used to say, he said, you just don't meet people today who say, I vote Liberal, I always vote Liberal. I've done since, since Joe Lyons. Uh, or um, shouldn't get a Labor defector to illustrate that point. Uh, <laughs> I've, done that, I've done that since Stanley Melbourne Bruce. Um, and, and you don't get people who say Labor, you rarely get people uh, these days. Uh, they, they've, they've, they've truly died out. Is I've always voted Labor, I've always stuck with the Labor Party. You've got de-alignment, and um, it is an Australian expression of a force that's at work in political systems around the world. No political system is immune to this. Um, it's, a, it's worthy, Tom, of, of some applied Research. attention here. The different forms of populism are taking, right and left populism, rewriting the uh, political alignments around the world. Yeah. I think the other thing, just uh, further to that, is that there is uh, demographic uh, shifts that are quite mm. profound. Within I mean, the uh, seats. Uh, uh, no, sorry, within the state. I mean, the, uh, the Greens hold the seat of Ballina. I mean, the north coast of New South Wales was a bastion of conservatism, of mm. national party leaders. Uh, federal and state. Uh, the Greens now happen to hold, I think, because of perhaps a uh, gas exploration uh, uh, fracking, anti-fracking thing. But that's going to mean the seat of Ballinor, I suspect, is going to be uh, very intensively contested. And uh, the Nats have got a, uh, a more moderate uh, candidate uh, who's allegedly doing very well. So I think the fact that people, people from Sydney have moved to Ballina, if you want to put it that way, or to Tweed, is part of the change. So the country or the regions yeah. are no longer made up of farmers and people servicing farmers. There are uh, professional people, there are universities in these various regional centres. So the nature of the population um, and its, its ethos is changing, I think, quite significantly. Um, we just mentioned while we're talking about minor parties. Uh, in New South Wales, it's, uh, there is a very strong possibility, according to Anthony Green, and he's the election guru mm -hmm. that everyone refers to all the time, that uh, One Nation will get a seat in the upper house. And Mark Latham's at the top of the ticket, so there's a good chance that he will control or have the balance of power in New South Wales in the upper house which will be, as a journalist, extremely interesting to cover. Um, may or may not be good for the people, but uh, I good want for to, the journalist. Uh, Bob Carr, I'm not sure how well you know Mark Latham. Um, <laughs> I'd like your insights uh, into what that might be like. Um, well, when I became opposition leader in 1988, the, um, the same week that he mm. became Premier, and we've been around for a long time, uh, ALP head office gifted me with a talented staff and one of them was Mark Latham. Um, he was a turbulent presence on the staff. He, he was gifted and he produced some good material for me. I think he was behind the research in that, that uh, world-renowned work of political science, Griner's Hundred Broken Promises. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, he was restless to get into politics. I, I, I got to find it passing strange that... Um, Someone who might have had six years as a senior minister in the last Labor government might be looking at being a, a minister, a, a treasurer or a foreign minister if Bill Shorten wins um, in uh, May, has swapped that for the municipal splendour 
of the New South Wales Parliament, <laughs> and the upper house in particular. But he'll wield and, some power. Uh, and, and, and sitting on the cross benches. But I think, I think he's distinguished himself in two, in two sort of areas. I'm not saying they're not serious. One is uh, opposing political correctness. Mm. In, other words, in other words, vacuuming up the, the uh, entertaining political debate that's running very strongly in the United States against uh, the excesses of the left on campuses, um, some of the debate over um, transsexual mm. issues and status, transgender status. Um, so he's, he's, he's giving this uh, a bit of energy in the context of Australian politics, whether it's required or not. I'll leave that to others to judge. And second, he has picked up the anti-development mantra. Um, too many towers and all the rest, and I think that's very potent for him. Mm. I, I want to come back to anti-development, mm. uh, but you know what it's like to have a minority government in yes, New South Wales. it's a lot of fun. To <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how do you think it'll go in the upper house with Mark Latham, you know, oh, and no. if Gladys Berejiklian has to do deals with yeah. Mark Latham? I, uh, Mark and I did a function like this at Michael Yabsley's place before the last state election, and uh, Mark was very sensible and sane and predicted the outcome correctly. I think he even supported uh, Mike Baird on polls and wires. Look, I think he's an interesting mind. I think he's and he's by now a very independent mind. Uh, uh, I don't. I think he's moved past uh, uh, the legacy of his time in the Labor Party. I think he actually might be uh, an interesting force. Whether he'll have the balance of power on his own, I instinctively doubt. But uh, uh, look, I think in the upper house, uh, I think uh, cross benches, if they've got some intellectual. Uh, force and principle, uh, and it is a house of review, and uh, it can be useful. So I, um, I think the upper house in New South Wales, uh, in the time of uh, the, this government, the last eight years, um, hasn't been particularly obstreperous, and uh, so I, I don't think, the, the government knows it won't control the upper house on its own. I think they'll be comfortable as long as they have a working majority in the lower house. Bob Carr, you mentioned anti-development and this sentiment mm. amongst voters of, of anti-development. Um, it's an issue for both parties. Their polling and focus groups show that. You famously said Sydney's full. Gladys Berejiklian has taken that in, you know, is taking in the John Howard style of approach in, in numbers in terms of her policy. Is the anti-development immigration... Is there a congestion link? Where does it come from? Well, I think there have been a few state elections where the issue of the rate of population growth, the infrastructure required for it, the choice of infrastructure and the ways of funding it have been the dominant issues. You could probably say that those two changes of government in Victoria were explained by those pressures of congestion, development, pressures on the budget, what infrastructure do you invest in and how do you fund it? And certainly I think that was the case in those two successive changes of government in Queensland. Mm. And the big debate was how you pay for the infrastructure required by the intense population growth in the southeast of Queensland. You do it through some, some big uh, marquee privatisations. Um, Labor opposed that and won because, as I think we now know, privatisations tend to be unpopular. Um, translated here... There is a backlash. 
um, and the consensus would be on both sides of politics that that uh, the pressures have been produced by a too ambitious immigration target. Now that's been my position. That's been my position for some time and it arises from an interest I've got in uh, sometimes provocative uh, ecological, environmental stances, uh, influenced by Paul Ehrlich and others. Um, but it's now become, I think, the dominant strand and it's not unreasonable, not unreasonable that the Australian people should ask, do we need population at these levels? Is there an economic case for it? Is there an environmental case for it? Might our cities be better served if we added a million to our population every six years instead of every three years? Um, and, and you can't finger Sydney as being distinctive. The pressures are more acute in Melbourne and they're very strong in southeastern Queensland. And I, I've always reduced this to a matter of numbers. It, it is the numbers, stupid, is the banner in my office. I may, I've never made any reflection on the cultural impact or social challenges because I think they're all positive. That's been my consistent argument. So I think I, we, we live in Maroubra. No state government has done anything to degrade our quality of life. Well, some total of state government interventions, whether it's cleaning up the beaches, stormwater, getting rid of smoking in, in restaurants, um, planting trees, all the rest has been to make life in that corner of Sydney as in the rest of Sydney more attractive. But right now, an industrial site that sits between our home and our entry to the Eastern Distributor, a superb bit of infrastructure, is going to be obstructed by the unveiling of a forest of towers with a population, if I remember correctly, of about eight or 10,000 between us each morning and the start of the Eastern Distributor. Meanwhile, the excellent bus service that everyone was happy with, serving the eastern suburbs, is entirely disrupted and wrecked by a light rail blown out in cost, um, appallingly mismanaged, that is going to screw up the bus service. That light rail should have gone in Western Sydney, linking a new growth suburb to part of the heavy rail network. And all of a, all of a sudden, with the prospect of Long Bay Jail site being redeveloped, I guess for towers, um, and without a significant augmentation of public transport because the corridor that should be occupied by an extension of the metro, eventually, ultimately, is now being occupied by light rail, we're really going to be hemmed in. So I've got a lot of sympathy for people who, who say um, this is inequitable, it's happened too fast, and when the government exempts safe liberal areas from those forests of towers, feel somewhat outraged. Nick Rana? I think Gladys would be delighted to hear Bob endorsing her point of view. <laughs> um, the, uh, but what uh, he makes the, about the anti-development is, is yeah, Michael oh yeah. Daly well, has I'm said, Gladys, you know, um, there's 12,000 in Western Sydney, 1,200 on the North Shore. There seems to be unanimity uh, between the parties as far as I can see. Uh, I've heard um, Gladys talk about a 50% reduction. You'll, you'll know better than me uh, in... Uh, immigration being appropriate uh, and I think the uh, federal government is moving and it's probably bipartisan there towards saying to the states well we'll give you more say it typically has been a purely federal issue uh, the truth is the states do the infrastructure so if the feds do the immigration and the states do the infrastructure and there's a mismatch you get the uh, 
some of the feelings people uh, people talk about. So, so you, you feel the anti-development sentiment comes similar to what Bob Carr was talking <coughs> about in terms of this link with infrastructure and that has been. Yes, so I, I think that's the it's ma it's matching the two. I mean, at the end of the day, it is impossible to uh, to stop population growth. It's a matter of degree and. Uh, I think it's fair to say that over a long period of time we probably underinvested, uh, in particularly in public uh, transport, but also in uh, a decent road system. So, uh, yeah, I think that's the problem. The problem is you can't have population growth running ahead of the infrastructure, both the economic and the social infrastructure. And I think it's fair to say that is what's happened uh, in Australia in. Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and we're now playing catch-up in various degrees. Uh, Bob Carr, you mentioned the light rail, but this is for you, Nick Griner. This is uh, in 2011, a report from Infrastructure New South Wales, which Nick Griner was the chair of. This is a quote. Sydney's CBD is extremely congested. Solutions that work in low-density CBDs, such as Dublin or Amsterdam, are unlikely to work here. Delivering light rail to Sydney CBD is not impossible, but as other cities have learned to their cost, an ill-considered light rail plan can lead to years of disruption and financial disaster. Now, have mm. you said I told you so? Uh, <laughs> modesty wouldn't allow me to say I told you so. Um, Nick, yeah. Gorvidal said the sweetest <laughs> words in the English language, the sweetest four words in the English language are... I told, told you, you so. so. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, look, we it did have. It's supposed to be open. We don't know when it's going to be open. It's three we, billion we did dollars. We did have that view. Uh, um, uh, I haven't been involved for four or five years now. Um, I think it is. It's true that most light rail systems that are retrofitted into old cities uh, do tend to be difficult and and costly, and you don't know what's there. That's hardly a a great surprise. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I obviously can't resolve from what I said in 2011, um, and, but I haven't been boasting, I told you so, until <laughs> you brought it up. <laughs> a couple of things um, that reflecting over your time both as premiers, uh, law and order was the staple of state governments, of policy, and uh, Victorians just, you know, largely had a, a law and order election, but it seems in New South Wales that we've moved on from that policy. Can I ask you, is that a blessing and why, Bob Cut? Well, we had, a, we had uh, law and order as a prominent issue. You promised in 88, Nick, uh, uh, truth, truth in sentencing. In truth in yes. sentencing. Indeed. Um, I, I resolved that we wouldn't lose an election because we appeared to be mm. soft on law and order, and I adopted uh, something of the the tenor of uh, Tony Blair when he said, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Um, but in three elections, my, uh, my policies on this, on law enforcement, countered commitments by liberal leaders to introduce a version of California's three strikes and you're in. In 1995, John Fay explicitly said, if we're elected, will adopt a policy of three strikes and you're in. How were we going to counter that? Well, I just said, three strikes? Why should three strikes? Why should you wait for three strikes? Two. One horrendous One. crime is enough. <laughs> um, but um, by winning that election, we prevented that Californian-style legislation getting on the statute books. In 1999, Kerry Chikorovsky had a version of that set Minimum, minimum sentences, so tying the hands of judges. They couldn't go below a certain sentence. 
And we countered that by another set of law and order policies that, that, that blocked that entering, entering the state's uh, regime of statutes. And then John Brogdon in 2003 said, no, the time is clear. We want minimum standard sentences. And I said, we'd have recommended sentences. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, yeah, you asked why, why, is this, why did this figure historically bigger in New South Wales and other states? This is my theory. We had a corruption-prone police force, and that meant an underperforming police force. It was a badly performing police force. The Royal Commission led to a set of reforms. Uh, they were locked into place. And after a, a difficult transition, you might remember Peter Ryan's leadership of the police force, we got to a point where finally the detectives were on the job after lunch each day, which they hadn't been till we introduced random breath and alcohol testing. Uh, integrity testing meant that when a, a police officer found a, a bag of white paper or a stash of cash, he or she couldn't be certain that they weren't being, their actions weren't being filmed by a, a hidden camera. Uh, so these measures and the establishment of the Police Integrity Commission meant that we got police and, and reform to police uh, training, meant that we got a police force that started to perform well. And that drove down crime in New South Wales, as did, as did some of the harsh measures. A lot of repeat offenders, instead of going in and out of the prison system, as if through a turnstile, repeat offenders did get put away for longer. And I've got to say, that was the advice of the Bureau of, um, of Crime Statistics. They said, if you want to have an impact on crime, hit hard the repeat offenders, and we did. Do you think it's a blessing that it's not a staple now? And if it is, it's a different sort of staple. There's lots of debate about harm minimisation and pill testing. Look, I think it is a step in the right direction. Uh, uh, the Victorian election last year, it's fair to say the Liberal Party campaigned heavily about Sudanese crime and about some Labor backbenchers who'd done whatever they'd allegedly done wrong in terms of using public funds. Uh, and I think that made very little impact as far as one could tell in terms of the election. Uh, I think it is about time we got past law and order. When I was a kid, and Askin was, some of people here old enough, uh, Askin was the uh, Premier, people would write Laura, L-A-U-R-A, Norda, N-O-R-D-A, Laura Norda. And uh, everyone was, you know, that was the the conservative catch cry. Um, I don't really know what Labor was like back then, but broadly speaking, uh, I mean, Bob's recounting is fair, but broadly speaking, the two sides, no one's wanted to be soft on crime. It's not a, an acceptable, a winning position to be seen as soft on crime. I do think in the 21st century, it is about time we grew up. We looked at recidivism. It is true that uh, truth in sentencing largely drove longer real sentences. Used to be you'd get 20 years with, a, a, uh, with eight years actual, which always seemed absurd. So I think we do need to look at how we stop recidivism, how we, how we keep people out rather than how we put more people in at the first opportunity and how we get people in victimless crimes uh, out of jail. Mm. So I, I think there is a bit of a sophistication uh, growing in Australia and I can't remember a state election anywhere where <coughs> law and order has been the deciding factor, mostly because both sides have, have stuck reasonably together, I think. The, the police force we've got today is unrecognisable mm. from yes, the one indeed. that existed under Askin, yep. in which 
we, we inherited sure. yep. in our time. Yeah. Another interesting policy area that's now coming up with this state election is the environment. Um, it's certainly, we saw federally yesterday, Scott Morrison announced his plan. Um, Bob Carroll, come to you on environment. In, in, secondly, even though obviously when you were Premier it was a, a major feature. But Nick Griner, why, don't you, why haven't we seen environment be a feature much more of a state government, particularly in the last two terms? Oh, in New South Wales, um, I'm, I'm not the expert on, on that. It is largely because the, uh, I mean, uh, Bob did a lot of what you'd call smaller things, national parks, those sort of things. The, the big picture issues, uh, rightly or wrongly, the federal government and the federal opposition have taken energy. Energy used to be a state issue. Uh, it's now, as you can see, clearly a federal, a federal one, and I think they probably regret the fact that they, uh, they took it over. But look, I, I do think um, I notice uh, the Liberal candidate in Wentworth and today's Herald saying uh, uh, the Liberals need to be more upfront in terms of the environment. I think Sharma's right. Um, dare I say it, in about 1985, I made a speech about warm, dry and green. And uh, most people thought dry was okay, that was sort of the economics, but it was unusual for the Liberals to have a warm and a green. Um, I think the environment shouldn't be so much of a party political issue. I mean, if it's true we are all environmentalists. We might have degrees of difference, degrees of greenness, if you like. Mm -hmm. But uh, the notion that environment has to be an issue that is um, party divisive in a very clear way, uh, which is what some uh, conservative politicians believe, is not my view. And I, I doubt that it's, uh, it's Gladys's view. So should, there have been, should they have done more? I, I can't answer that, yeah. to be honest. I really don't know. Yeah, I, I've got to say this. The, the big uh, environmental reforms, of the, the hard environmental reforms of my time in government were proper pricing of the irrigation waters. It was a reform the National Party couldn't touch because of their base. Parties are about interests. The National Party was not able to reform water pricing in inland New South Wales. Uh, native vegetation. A coalition government couldn't have taken on farmers the way we did with a policy, a very bold interventionist policy, that said you will not be able to clear your native vegetation on your property, leasehold or freehold, in the way you've been doing. Now that was the only reason Australia reached its Kyoto targets under the Howard government was because we did that in New South Wales and Beatty did it in Queensland. Restraints on the clearing of native vegetation. I think one of the biggest differences in the parties in this state election is that that legislation, hard fought for in my time, has been reversed. And I think the quality of our river system in New South Wales is an indictment of National Party management. Now, I wasn't going to be partisan, but when Gladys stood on, on the banks of the Darling and said it was a choice between fish and people, she neglected 50 years of thought and action on the environment, which has made it clear you can protect rural communities and at the same time save the environment. We've surely got beyond positing this as a choice between jobs and communities on the one hand and the environment on the other. I, to me, it's just bewildering that the conservative side of politics can't embrace an active nature conservation agenda. It is bewildering. Uh, pricing mechanisms, for example, um, using market mechanisms to achieve environmental outcomes. 
Uh, you saw the takeover of the Federal Coalition by climate change deniers under, under Tony Abbott. Um, and I'm just bewildered that on the conservative side of politics, you can't have live wires sponsoring an active agenda that just says, we're conservatives, we want to conserve a natural world that is under unprecedented pressure. To me, that's just bewildering. There's actually an event tonight called Conservatives for Conservation on in the eastern suburbs. It Just is, let me it make is, the point. Uh, Bob's point's fine as far mm. as it goes. The, uh, uh, <laughs> what he didn't say was that uh, before he became Premier, we, we brought in Sydney Water Corp and the Greens and the environmentalists all supported it because we introduced volumetric pricing of water. Again, some of the older people here like me will remember that you used to pay for water not on what you used in Sydney, but you used to pay for it on the capital value. So you'd have a, a building in Macquarie Street that used almost no water, but would pay an awful lot. So you know, the point's right about what can be done by different parties, and it's easier for some to do some things than others. But uh, I certainly think that uh, the Liberal Party and the National Party need a strong position on conservation. They do need a strong position on the environment. It doesn't mean it's identical to the sort of religious views, if you like, that the Greens and some of the Labor mm. Party have got, but there ought to be a balance because it's a basic human issue. But uh, I'm sure that there'll be many people, obviously, that in <coughs> Labor that would argue part of the issue with the coalition is that you're still split because you've still got people mm. that don't believe in climate change and so there's yeah, ideological... Think, yeah, well, the Prime Minister's made his position clear yesterday. So, yeah, it's, it's true that uh, we've been slower to get to uh, clarity on that than we should have, in my view, but um, at least we have. Mm. Um, looking back, I think, Nick Griner, last year, it was 30 years since you were Premier. Correct. Uh, how much has state politics, I'll ask this to both of you, how much mm. has state politics changed in, in that 30 years? And, and keeping in mind the role of the media and the 24-hour news cycles, please? Well, I, I think if I can start with the second question first, uh, I do think it's a pity that the media have become sort of predictable, if you like. Uh, it's part, perhaps, of the 24-hour cycle and so on. I think it applies federally as well. I do think Malcolm Turnbull had a point about you can always... You, you know pretty much what the Australian will say. You know pretty much what the Herald will say. That wasn't the case. I mean, the Herald uh, in the 1980s... Uh, played a, a strong individual role in, in New South Wales politics, as it ought to, given its position as, as the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, I think it's lost a bit of uh, that, and it's now become a much more predictable uh, soft left, if you like. I feel uh, like I need someone here from the Herald to defend it. Well, no, I could say the same <laughs> about the ABC, ABC, but I won't. <laughs> no. Uh, the, um, but my point is not to criticise the Herald or the, or the Australian. I think I think it's more to, you, you asked the question. I think yeah. we do have to produce more uh, news. I think the state, and Bob will have a view, I think we get a lot less coverage of state mm. politics mm. than we used mm. to, which mm. is a great pity. I mean, we used to have... So you'll come on campaign trail then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come on, states, on state versions of the 7.30 report and mm. so on. Now, it used to be that there was far more coverage mm. than there is at the moment, and there was far more sort of... Uh, 
policy <laughs> debate. Uh, in recent times, the Herald's taken on the uh, Sydney, the future of Sydney a bit as an issue, as has the Telegraph, which suddenly became the paper for Western Sydney. Uh, so I think it's changed because there is less media attention than there, than there was. Uh, I think the power has shifted more to Canberra in the 30 years. Uh, Canberra has, you know, Canberra now has a view on city roads, on public transport, on uh, obviously funds the hospitals, it makes profound statements about national curricula in education and so on. So if you get the, the gravita gravitation uh, of uh, power to the centre, I think it makes you know, you see a lot less of the bear pit on television, frankly. I'm sure you'd like to see more of it, maybe. Sometimes. But you see a lot less than you used to. Really. And uh, I think that's a pity because, you know, someone said, uh, we don't know, might have been before we came on, you don't know the election's on yet in New South Wales. I do think there is far less intensity of interest about mm -hmm. state politics around Australia, including here, than there was. It is much more a federal... Um, a federal game. I think that's a pity. Okay. See, see, with the with the Herald, um, which, which, in in a sense, was the uh, the benchmark for us in our time in mm. state politics in many ways. Mm. Um, they used to have a big staff up the road in Parliament House. Now I think they've got what. What is it, three two. people? Two or three people? No, a third and person. The gallery's half the size. And, well, the press gallery's half the size. To me, that's inconceivable that mm. the Herald would only have that instead of the eight or ten that they might have had. And I've actually got a notion, I'll share this with you, and that is that if this eastern suburbs late rail had occurred on your watch or mine, mm, I said this in a few gatherings, mm. if the Herald gathered some of the indignation they threw at state governments over... Um, Sewerage um, going into the ocean. Sewerage in, in the ocean or yeah. the monorail. Yeah. Yeah. If they gave if they'd given comparable weight to this, I've actually said they they would have got a premier's resignation. A premier's resignation. But it's as if somehow you haven't got any longer and I'm not, not criticizing the Herald, their their advertising revenue, those those rivers of gold that used to fund a beautifully overstaffed uh, paper where editors could send uh, the gardening correspondent to New Guinea and um, <laughs> it, was, it was out of the out of the pages of Scoop, Evelyn War. Um, that was that was terrific. That was terrific for public affairs coverage. Um, but I, I'm certain an, an authoritative newspaper um, media, like in the old days, with a concentrated campaign, could have taken out a premier, be it a car or a griner a Fay or a Yemma over an infrastructure project that had been so catastrophic. But you don't seem to have that concentrated attention with, with a newspaper um, dragging the others along with it. But is it that, is it that you don't get the coverage? Because I think, you know, if, if for Light Rail, for example, it's been covered quite heavily, but isn't it also the case that uh, the stories are up there online in the morning, it's all digital, mm -hmm. it's on 24, and the news cycle just... Changes so quickly. It seems to be diluted in a way it wasn't diluted when the papers mm. papers came out. But there's nothing really new about the 24-hour news cycle. I remember once as a as a desperate opposition leader in my first month thinking I'd got Griner because the Herald had an expose on its front page, it was running strongly in the media. I'd got on Mike Carlton, who was rating very well at the time. I thought I had him. I'd go in and do a media conference in Parliament House, 
as we're driving in, there's Griner unveiled on John Law's Hello World. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, oh, John, this is, this is a silly beat up. Uh, when, the developer, when the developer gave these cars as gifts to my staff, he really wasn't buying influence of the pay. John Laws agreed with you emphatically. I think no the media doubt. secretary no had, doubt. Taken, <laughs> had taken him to lunch recently, and, um, and no, he used to take us to lunch. That was also <laughs> that was also a difference. And I, I think he and, and I think I think the developer involved was a friend of his. Yeah. And in the car, opposition leader, opposition leader Bob Carr, three months in the job, was thinking, "How how on earth, how on earth am I going to overcome this?" A scandal breaks in the morning paper. Run strongly on morning radio. And then at nine o'clock, there's Greiner talking John Lewis and the rest of the media out of pursuing it any further. Um, so the 24-hour media has always been there. The, the federal politicians are a little like crybabies going on about this. There's always been drive-time radio and uh, midnight to dawn and all the rest, I don't think. But you did have stronger newspapers mm. and they seemed to set the tone and they did have bigger staffs and they were able to persuade, pursue things and run campaigns in a way that doesn't happen when you've got three journalists in Parliament House instead of eight or ten. Yeah, and there is a bit more of the gotcha as well. I mean, I mentioned the sewage. I think it might have been the Telegraph. doesn't matter. One of the papers in Sydney, I think, successfully ran a campaign against the amount of against the ocean outfalls mm. and they had poo marches and it was... But you know, they were running a... Um, a, an aggressive, intelligent campaign in the public interest. Mm. You really don't get much of that. You get stuff about is, is the contract over budget or uh, is there going to be a court case or has someone you know, done something, proved something badly. But there really isn't much focus on the substantive issues of mm. state policy. And I think that's a great, uh, it's I a great pity. a former uh, colleague of mine who's no longer in the press gallery works for um, a minister at Channel 9. He once said to me, I'm the Rhodes reporter that sometimes covers state politics. Mm -hmm. But yep. it's, it's different. The ABC still does lots of policy and it always has. But mm. the other thing that you've also got uh, that's changed and with social media and you, you'd be well aware, Bob, of course, federally, you know, this social media cycle. But you then see the social media campaigns, you know, take off in a sense. Or you can also see, look what happened in Newcastle uh, last week. Uh, Gladys Berejiklian and Andrew Constance were there uh, in the local town. I don't know if people here saw it. There was a, um, a situation where they were talking about the Newcastle light rail and a journalist uh, from the Newcastle Herald was asking some questions and um, the Premier dismissed the journalist and, and then the Transport Minister sort of asked this journalist why they weren't being very positive. As a journalist, I can say we're not there to be cheerleaders. It's like, you know, we are there to ask questions. But that sort of thing can take a life of its own now as well. Hmm. Sure. I, uh, yeah, I've made many mistakes. certainly made my share of mistakes in dealing with this strange thing, the media, over the years. But I don't think I would go into Newcastle and insult its daily paper. Yeah, which is the only one there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're, in, you're agreeing again. This, you two are agreeing on a lot tonight. Well, that's what happens when you're 30 years on. <laughs> um, did I ask you, Bob Carr, did we talk about how much you think state politics has changed in 30 years? I know you talked about media. Well, the, ser the serious things to take account of is that how much power a state government has lost. Hmm. Uh, lost the power to uh, raise taxes on tobacco, um, alcohol and petrol. That was a big loss, less budget flexibility. 
um, lost industrial relations um, and with the GST have become proportionately more dependent on uh, reimbursement from the, uh, the federal government. Um, I imagine there's work on how there's, there are more conditional grants from the federal government in education and health. I presume mm. that enforcing federal policy on the states in a, in a Whitlam-esque sense. Um, there's far more or less leeway, yet state, state budgets, especially that of the capital works budget in New South Wales, are very important. Uh, land use planning continues to be a major responsibility. Mm. And what we discussed earlier, law and order, the criminal justice system, the courts, mm. um, the prisons, that's all a big state responsibility. Um, but nonetheless, one suspects a contraction, a, a further centralisation within our already centralised federal system is the big shift. One, one, one other change over um, our time has been um, fewer state-owned businesses. Um, he came in and... Sold them. Sold them. Sold a lot. Um, <laughs> sold, rightly sold, rightly sold, so. Yeah, <laughs> State Bank, uh, Government Insurance Office, uh, coal loader. I privatised the state-owned coal mines. Um, and tried the, to with the poles and wires. Yeah, um, but I privatised Freight Corps, mm. which is a big one, and we did it in conjunction mm. with the federal rail freight privatisation. It was good for both sides. We did that cooperating with the Howard government. And the other one was TAB. Um, and then you had electricity privatisation under, mm. under Baird. So um, the state, by that measure, the state sector is smaller. Um, mm. it's, got, it's got rid of a lot of business. I don't think the privatisation impulse will continue any further because I think both sides of politics would rule out mm. the privatisation of water and passenger rail. We might take some questions from the audience if anyone has. Oh, look, yeah, excellent. Everywhere. I hope they're tougher than mine. <laughs> Do you want to? You can. Yeah, if we start down the back, that's fine. Hi, I just um, had a question: whether you thought our federation would be more effective if power was returned to the state governments from the federal government? Mm. Ah, what a good question. <laughs> I I was thinking as the previous question was going, and I do think, and someone once suggested to Costello that he get Bob and me to uh, uh, share a review of the Federation, I think. Uh, I do believe it is probably the greatest untouched issue. I mean, in my time, Bob Hawke and I made an effort along with other state premiers, mostly Labor ones. Uh, I heard Chris Bowen recently say that any reform program that doesn't look at the Federation is not serious. So. Uh, not quite an answer to your question. I think you need, rather than just deciding you want to put power back to the states, which in many cases is not really going to be practical, the question really is how do you determine what the rules of the cooperation are, how clear they are, you know, where do you have uh, individuality and where do you have harmonisation or um, agree complete agreement. But uh, I am still very much of the view that I was uh, when the new federalism was on in the late 80s that uh, it's the greatest single failing that after a hundred plus years of federation we, st we have allowed the system of federation to, um, to grind slowly down and I certainly don't think COAG under governments of whatever sort is a very effective mechanism. When Victoria introduced a Minister for Respect, 
I thought something was happening. <laughs> I, thought, I thought as a make-work scheme, um, state cabinets could uh, have all the virtues represented. You have a minister for hope, a minister for charity. Um, Is there a limit I, on how many ministers you could have? I <laughs> Or how I, many virtues? I, I, I think it is a mess, and the, the leeching of power and responsibility from the states, I, I think, is regrettable. Um, John Howard was a great centraliser. Mm. Um, he even introduced, didn't he introduce a program to fund flagpoles in schools? Mm. Now, state governments haven't got the, the responsibility for funding flagpoles in, in primary schools, and I think something's seriously wrong. And uh, isn't it... I know, I know there's a lot of virtue in a national curriculum, but what if postmodernists control the Federal Department of Education? I'd rather, rather have had the mm. position where New South Wales was able to boast in my time, I hope it still can, the best curriculum with the best rigour and the most serious subject choice of any of the Australian states. A bit of diversity. Do you really want a national compensation scheme, workers' compensation scheme, if the lawyers are going to get to it and fill it with opportunities for litigation. A bit of, uh, and don't forget if you only had one government, if you had uniformity on drug policy, you wouldn't have had what I think is a useful experiment. Um, the, I'm not making too much of it, but it has saved a few hundred lives by, by independent assessment, the medically supervised injecting room and the possibility of pill testing in one jurisdiction. Competitive federalism has got value, but I think unless, Unless the conservative side of, a politi of politics were to see some value in, in uh, this redistribution, I, I, I don't think it's going to amount to anything because Labor is likely to be all uh, Labor is likely to, to be always in the Whitlam-esque position of, of centralising power. Mm. Uh, I think someone down there's got oh, the microphone. Um. Uh, Mr. Griner, you and I had the pleasure of studying as foreign students at an American university. I don't think the universities ended off worse for our presence than they were before we arrived. I have grandchildren who are studying as Australian students at two foreign, student, two foreign universities. One's called the University of Sydney, the other one's called the University of New South Wales. <laughs> to gain entry to the universities, they have to have higher tertiary admission ranks than foreign students who are the majority of the student body. Are we heading in the right direction? Look, I hate to tell you, I think that's outside my pay grade. Uh, it's, uh, it's federal, uh, it is federal mm. policy and I really don't have a view. I think Bob is a bit more involved with universities than I am. Uh, I think I make only this observation. The, f uh, the university's business model depends overwhelmingly on foreign students paying their way. And so we, and again, I don't think it's a liberal labor uh, thing, we've allowed the model to develop where the university's vice-chancellors, if they were here, would say we can't sustain ourselves without... We're, we're addicted, effectively, uh, to very large numbers of foreign students. And uh, I think one needs to look at the business model before that's going to change. If you don't change the economic incentives that enable the universities to function, especially the research, the older universities, uh, then... You know, uh, vice-chancellors behave like politicians and business people. They respond to the incentives that are set up in the system. Just, it just seems to be a reflection of globalisation. And uh, isn't it our second most valuable mm. export? Our second most valuable export. 
Um, we start striking, striking out our exports one by one, only one thing happens, we impoverish ourselves, ourselves as a country. Neville ran by statute legislation deprived landowners of mineral rights. Australia now has 73% higher electricity costs than the United States of America, which has reduced its electricity by about 300% and also reduced its carbon emission. The big difference between the two countries is this. Property rights reside with the landowners and therefore they are the best to make assessment as to whether fracking would injure their whole production of food. Also, the state government in Australia has put a moratorium, the states, over gas. Now, w if we don't want coal, we've got to have something else. America has 23 nuclear power stations, but we're not allowed to have that. America has 500,000 kilometres of gas pipelines. We have 20,000. Yet, given our land size and our population, we have half of their gas resources. I really uh, hate the fact that landowners no longer own the minerals. Out of 100 drops of rain, they own four. And then we have a ban on exactly what they do with their land. So I would like to pose to you that the movement that is now started in the Northern Territory, probably because I started it, that we return property rights to minerals to the landowners, be endorsed by both of you. I, uh, I, I just confine myself to one part of that question, and that is the, um, the movement, the pronounced movement, that took off very quickly against, that was the, the all-encompassing all term Unconventional gas, is that the term? Yep. Because you, un, unconventional gas. I, th I think it does deserve study. I thought, I thought it is the, the less offensive fuel in greenhouse terms, um, and it did confer on us a major asset. This, this happened after my time as Premier, and then I watched with fascination as, beginning with the Greens, then the National Party, then the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, we closed down this industry in New South Wales, unconventional gas. Um, after my time and above my pay grade, but I do think it was a striking development and it did bring the National Party and the Green Party mm. together with that campaign mm. to stop the development of a, a major resource. Yeah, I'd only add, um, I'm not sure I'm an expert as you obviously, uh, obviously are, Queensland does much better in terms of gas production because the farmers, in broad terms, uh, have an economic interest. So there isn't a problem with Queensland shutting down its gas industry, as, as Bob just described. It's fair to say New South Wales and Victoria, uh, Labor and Liberal governments have essentially closed down the gas industry. Um, I think there is one development at Pilliger or somewhere which is under, yeah, which may a, happen. Oh, there's a moratorium but on coal seam gas yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and the, it is driven by politics, uh, not by The last rationality. election, they, the Nationals lost the seat of Ballina to the Greens mm. based on coal seam gas, even though they shut down the coal seam gas, um, uh, the coal seam gas policy. They overturned it. I'll just get you to grab a microphone. Should we... Uh, Chris Johnson with the Urban Task Force. Uh, Bob, you mentioned these terrible towers that are cropping up. Nick hinted a bit about development and towers. 
But Sydney's changing dramatically because houses are so expensive, apartments are a lot cheaper. 33% of Sydney siders now live in apartments, a big shift. Are the politicians missing the fact that a whole new generation is coming through, living differently, different lifestyle, and thinking the old version of suburbia is what all voters are? My first job in politics was Minister for Planning and Environment. Uh, I got the portfolio in December 1984. And one of my major tasks was to persuade local government to accept more urban consolidation. Townhouses, villa houses, and uh, where appropriate apartments. So this is, this is a, a long run campaign. We, in state politics, both of us were engaged, engaged in it. Um, I think the issue, as, speaking as a resident of Maroubra, if the state government had accepted his advice on that light rail, um, and we had that old bus corridor not being crowded out now with this cumbersome tram, but protected for a metro, running out right along Anzac Parade to where I live at Maroubra and beyond, to Malabar, you know, in the direction of La Perouse, right along that peninsula, you could make a case. It would be a very attractive option to live in an apartment, even for us as we, we get older, to live in a, an apartment out there along Anzac Parade and to come down and to get on a metro station, and as you do in London, Paris or Berlin, to be whisked um, into the city. Um, you know, how, how terrific a journey is from Martin Place to Bondi Junction. But we, we miss that opportunity to do a cut and cover underground along that, that corridor, that old tram bus corridor. And as a result, there are huge difficulties with that concentration of towers that's going to go on that old industrial site. It's crowding out at the access we will have to a splendid bit of infrastructure, the Eastern Distributor, and it will be inadequately serviced by a bus system that's now told to integrate itself with an awkward imposed light rail. That means people from that housing estate, if they choose public transport, from that, that forest of towers, if they choose public transport, having to start a journey on a bus and after a short distance change transport mode to the light rail and make a slow journey to the city. But Chris, uh, let me just say, I mean, this is not a free ad for the Urban Task Force. I think the, uh, the, the issue is, as Bob was trying to put it, I think, it's the quality of the density. I mean, ultimately, whatever the immigration rate, whatever the population, natural population growth, Sydney's going to grow significantly uh, and there will be increase in density. The question is, how well do you do it? How good is the infrastructure? Is the transport there ahead of time? I was at Oran Park last week and they're talking about six and eight storey towers in the middle around the town centre and over where the train will eventually go. That Terrific. makes eminent Terrific. sense. So I don't think it's too easy to get into corners about it. You know, I'm for low density, I'm, I'm pro-development, mm. I'm against development. That's sort of plainly stupid given the imperatives of the size we are and the size we will be regardless of what any politician does. So, um, and 
it, you, should, you should read some of the stuff Chris puts out. It's how, how other countries have done uh, densification. That's a shocking word, but <laughs> how other countries have done densification well. Um, and I, I think the trend is inevitable. It's naturally harder in areas where the density is being retrofitted, in all fairness, uh, which might be true of Maroubra or Pagewood. But uh, broadly speaking, uh, I think we need to get behind doing increased density in a way that is, um, that is higher quality, both in terms of transport, but also in terms of living, in terms of amenity, in terms of uh, greenery and so on. Now, I th there is a big challenge. Uh, and it's a pity in some ways that it's caught in, in partisan politics, not even partisan, it's just politics. Those who are in and uh, do one thing, those who are out do the opposite. It is a big problem for Sydney to get density right, but I do think the Urban Task Force does a pretty good job of pushing, like for pushing for options. <laughs> one more question. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, uh yeah, forget me because I've, you've shut me out for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I honestly don't mind if you uh, want to ask a question. Well, I, I have been trying. Yeah, there you go. There's nothing personal. I was Thank actually you. looking for another female in the audience to ask the final question, but that's okay. There's no one. No, he's male behind you. It's you all right. You ask the question. No. Uh, this is supposed to be about the state election, mm. and you represent one way or another the two sides of major sides. And there's a factor that hasn't been mentioned at all, and I'm wondering what your both sides are doing about it in terms of focus groups and so on. In the 2016 run-up in the primaries, more millennials voted for Bernie Sanders than Trump and Clinton put together. And that hasn't been mentioned here. Mm. Nick, you just vaguely mentioned demographics. Mm. And I have four grandchildren who are going to vote. They're millennials. They'll all ask them, but they'll probably vote Labor because, after all, Labor can say both in the state and Fed anything they like because they're not there. And the other side, unfortunately, have to try and stand by what they're actually doing. And so I would expect that the vast majority of millennials will vote Labor. And I'm just wondering what you two thought from your party's point of view about how to do something about that. Yep. Um, okay. The, um, look, I, I think there is, uh, try and be short because I think Tom wants us to finish. Um, I think mass political parties have a problem. It's, they're somehow inimical to the world of social media, of individual, where you can go publish, you can be a publisher yourself. So I think there's a problem for mass political parties and their membership around the world is down and they're mostly getting older and older. That's certainly true of my party and it's one of its problems that uh, uh, the centre of gravity uh, has moved up in age. Uh, it's always been true, David, that... Um, uh, young people have voted more to the left. It's the old thing about if you don't vote, you know, Labor, you haven't got a heart, and if you, 20 years later, if you don't vote Liberal, you haven't got a head or whatever. So that's always a brain. That's always been, that's always been, uh, that's always been, I think, largely true. Um, but the, um, the, the resistance of young people, of, of people under 25 or 30, to organised politics, uh, of all sides is is quite severe. It is um, they are uh, in quite 
uh, intensely. It's not high on the career list. It's not high on the career <laughs> list, and it's um, there's quite an intensity about them in terms of their rejection of uh, traditional politics, uh, as well as the sort of slight bias, if you like, to the left amongst young people. I don't think there's a magic answer to that. Uh, I certainly haven't found it in the two years I've been uh, president of the uh, of the Federal Liberal Party. The issue is that you get small groups that are activists on b in both parties and they're very keen and they want to have a career but the broad brush of young people uh, aren't particularly interested in all sorts of institutions. There's less of them in surf clubs, there's less of them in Rotary, there's less in political parties, virtually none in churches or very small numbers in churches. So it's a very fundamental problem. Uh, the conventional I don't, churches. Yeah, I con yeah, yeah, yes, there are a lot of them in, the, yeah. yes, in yeah. the newer populist ones. So I don't have the answer. I wish I did. But I think you're correct in, in identifying a, um, a rejection of institutions amongst which politics and major parties are part of that. I don't know why David's so alarmed by what is so obviously to the rest of us a wholesome trend. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the New York Times has got a, a splendid article on its front page, the lead article when I looked at it earlier today. It's based on the UK and they're talking to youngsters who are supporting socialist causes. And it turns out they're all the victims of austerity. They have suffered because of austerity. They've got, they've got bills of £55,000 for their university educations. Um, their parents have lost public housing. Um, and there are a few other big losses too. It's quite an interesting article. Austerity has bitten in those jurisdictions more than we in Australia would understand. And explains, explains why in the last British election they did something that I found surprising. They wanted Jeremy Corbyn mm. and that and, and his policies his policies of nationalising, not privatising, mm. which was the enthusiasm mm. of our governments, but of nationalising, nationalising British Rail is supported by 70% mm. of the British electorate. His other nationalisations are popular as well. Come to Australia, if I were on the conservative side of politics, I'd be thinking, and I'd want to test this in qualitative polling, but I'd be thinking that perhaps Peter Dutton's agenda wasn't that attractive to young people. But um, climate change denial was probably not the way of reaching out to voters in their 20s. Um, I actually think and it's something I develop in my book, which I know uh, <laughs> all of you have read. That have you got some here at the back? I actually, I actually think that as we go through the 2020s, 2030s, we're likely to face, David, something far more destabilising than what you've just identified, millennials voting Labor, but in response to the mounting evidence of climate change as a living force, the loss of the Great Barrier Reef, for example, we're going to face youth rage. We're going to face youth rage. They're going to be saying to our generation, the science was in and you toyed with this fantasy of climate change denial instead of acting while there was still time. As a result, we locked in not a two degree warming, not two degrees, but three to four to five degrees. I reckon you'll have youth rage at that point, which is far more serious than people thinking on a cyclical basis, round about this time we'll vote Labor. But I remember times when a majority of young people have voted for the conservative side of politics, even uh, as it was conscripting them to go to we, uh, Vietnam. We, Gentlemen, Bob Carr. 
Nick Reiner and Bridget Granville. <laughs>